to the Hey Soul Sister podcast where Mel Histon will guide you through life's big questions and bring you one step closer to doing this crazy journey as best you can. Hey Soul Sisters, I am really excited because I have the fabulous Dr. Emily Ford back on Hey Soul Sister today. Hey Dr. M. Hi. So I love having you on Hey Soul Sister. I'm happy to be back. Thank you. So so the reason why Dr. M is back is that we did an episode on perimenopause a couple of months ago and it got a really great response. I had a number of women reach out to me and wanted more information around symptoms and how to alleviate symptoms of perimenopause. So I thought, let's do that. Let's, let's do another episode. And I wanted to say for the last podcast, I'm not a medical doctor. It is a research interest of mine. So I thought I'd bring along a friend who is a medical doctor and has more of an understanding of really what happens in the doctor's office. Yes. So Dr. M is a PhD and you your speciality is fertility M? Yes, it is. Yes. And so we have on the Zoom today, we have the Distinguished Laureate Professor in Endocrinology, <laughs> Dr. Roger Smith. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on Hey Soul Sister. It's a pleasure. Dr. M was telling me that you are in fact a double doctor, a medical doctor and a PhD doctor. If we're going to get people on we've got the distinguished laureate professor and a double doctor to to answer some of our perimenopause questions so to get the ball rolling dr m let's do a bit of a recap on perimenopause what is perimenopause yeah so last time we were here we talked about i think the first thing would be the difference between menopause and perimenopause menopause in a way is just a day in someone's life which happens 12 months after the last period so the time before that comes with a lot of symptoms that we would say is going through menopause but is actually called perimenopause and we know this can last between four to eight years although there's been some cases where it's shorter and some cases where it's longer and it comes with a whole host of symptoms and i'll read out a few of them these are from the gene hales website J-E-A-N. This is a really great Australian resource for anyone who's wanting more information about perimenopause. So some of the symptoms would be hot flushes, night sweats, irregular periods, trouble falling asleep and staying asleep, breast tenderness, itchy skin, exhaustion, concentration, vaginal dryness, loss of libido, migraines, more intense PMS, mood changes, and also weight gain. So these are some of the things that people can expect to experience through perimenopause, but it's the severity that is different for each person. And it's a totally unique experience. Yeah, I'm, so I'm 46. I like to say I'm 36, but being realistic, I'm 46. And I have noticed a couple of things. Like I get the night sweats every now and then. And, um, my periods are kind of like less and less and less, but otherwise, you know, I'm actually not going too bad in terms of the whole perimenopause state, mm-hmm. um, which I'm very grateful for. However, again, I've had lots of questions come my way around the symptoms of perimenopause. And so, yes, Dr. Roger, I am throwing this to you. What are some of the earliest signs that someone's going into perimenopause, like the earliest things? Because that that was one question that that somebody who actually doesn't think they're in perimenopause yet, but she's like, oh, what should I start to look out for? Okay, so one of the things that Em said that I'd like to emphasise is that it is a unique experience for each woman. 
And why it's different like that is what happens with the menopause is actually that your ovaries are running out of eggs that can be fertilized. Now, the biology behind that is really cool and not completely understood. In other words, why do you release an egg each month? How does that egg actually make it to be the one that's released over all the other hundreds of eggs you've got in your ovaries, at least when you start off, or thousands when you're a, a baby inside the uterus, uh, where the female will have thousands of eggs. So how do you work out to release just one or occasionally two if you're going to have twins each month? That's a complex problem in biology that isn't fully resolved. But the fact is you do release pretty much one each month and eventually they run out and that's the menopause. But they don't just suddenly stop one day. Usually it's a stuttering run out. So that, say you've got 20 eggs left. They're all going to be slightly different in their sensitivity to hormones. So one might be coming through really well. And then uh, the next one is much harder to get going. And you might be a little bit, if you like, menopausal for that month and start developing hot flushes, a little bit of mood disturbance. And then a month later, the next egg turns out to be a, one that gets going really well and all the hot flushes disappear. And then you go on again and eventually you run out altogether and then you're fully menopausal. That's interesting. So, okay, I'm just rather it back to myself because you know, sharing my experience. It's funny. I have noticed that like my periods are are quite unpredictable. I can have a really, really heavy period. And then the next month is a very light period. And I've just finished my period and it was a really, really light one, but I had the bad night sweats. I was waking up in a leathery sweat in the night. So is that kind of, so you're saying that's kind of to do with like egg sensitivity and the, and how it's impacted on the, by hormones. So when you have your period, it's because uh, the ovary and the tissues around the egg have released a lot of estrogen, which has increased the lining of your uterus. Then it's produced some progesterone, which has, if you like, matured that lining. And then when the progesterone and estrogen levels drop, you get your period. Now, if you've got one of those borderline eggs, they won't have made as much estrogen or progesterone around them, and you'll probably get a very light period. But the next month might be one of those good eggs that you've still got left, and you'll get the full development of the lining and the full shedding and a full period. That is really interesting. think that makes it hard to diagnose as well so if you're in one of your normal periods where things are how you would expect them to be before perimenopause you might want to go to your doctor and say i think i'm through menopause but your levels at that time would be something that we wouldn't 
you know, expect to be perimenopausal. And it's because it's these like huge changes between, you know, hormonal flux and then hormonal normal conditions that make it really hard to pinpoint when it's exactly it's happening, when it started. Yeah, yeah. So so interesting. So, Roger, night sweats, that was a common question that has been asked of me and trouble sleeping. Why the night sweats and why trouble sleeping when we're going through that perimenopausal? Even it seems to be a postmenopausal. Yeah, absolutely. So those night sweats are thought to be the result of removing estrogen and the effects that has on an area of the brain called the hypothalamus, which regulates your temperature. And the setting of your temperature becomes unstable. So you can be more sensitive to cold, but also easily get very hot and feel very uncomfortable and sweat. Again, not every woman going through the menopause experiences this, but some, it's an absolute nightmare with drenching sweats. And I've met a number of patients who find it socially really difficult that they can't go out because they'll just pour with sweat. And they also can't sleep properly at night and particularly maybe can't sleep next to a partner uh, because (laughs) the partner doesn't have this instability. And so the bedclothes are being pulled on and thrown off all through the night. People are changing their night clothes uh, because they're drenched in sweat. They're having to get up at night, maybe and have a shower. It can be awful. And other women go through it and say, oh, what was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's part of the reality. And you talked about perimenopause versus postmenopause. And these symptoms continue postmenopausally and sometimes for many years. So I've certainly seen people in their 60s and 70s who still have menopausal flushing. What? Is there anything that we can do to alleviate those symptoms? Because it, I, I agree with you, women that I speak to, they they find it quite embarrassing sometimes, you know, even with their hubbies, their partners that they're waking up, you know. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest. The other day, other day when I had the night sweats a couple of nights in a row, one morning my hubby woke up and he was like, you had the sweats again, didn't you? And I was like, <laughs> yes. And he goes, yeah, I can smell it. Oh. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> And I, I, when I, I, so I, when I, um, you know, around period time when I think I'm going to get the night sweats, I actually sleep in a t-shirt to absorb the sweat yeah. so that I'm not soaking the sheets. But I'm like, it was not great when my hubby's saying that to me. Um, oh. But yeah, one of the questions is, I, again, like, is there anything that we can do to alleviate that or is it just, we've got to suck it up? There are different views on this and this is one of the challenges of managing the menopause. The symptoms are all due to estrogen deficiency. So the simple answer is you need estrogens. That's the simple answer. The harder part is weighing up the pros and cons of going on to estrogen replacement therapy. Now, the advantages are really quite huge. Estrogens protect your bones from getting thin. Estrogens protect your brain from the effects of withdrawal of estrogen. And that can be quite a dramatic effect. Uh, One of my friends and colleagues uh, in the UK was a professor of obstetrics. 
And she said to me one, at one meeting, oh, I've just gone through the menopause. It was terrible. Suddenly I couldn't think straight. Mm. And this is a highly intelligent woman running a big department, an international leader in her area. And suddenly she had massive brain fog. Wow. And she went on to estrogen and it all went away again. And now she's back doing uh, her very senior leadership roles. So estrogens affect virtually every cell in your body, your skin, your pelvic floor, the vaginal lining, how your brain's working, your hair, muscle, bones, everything. So uh, it's a big decision. Some people say, oh, well, menopause is natural. We, you just go through it, and as you said earlier, suck it up. That's the way it is, the way it was meant to be. Mm. That's not my attitude. To me, if any other gland in the body fails, like the thyroid or the adrenals or the pancreas, we replace the hormone. Yeah. As yeah. We can. It's not as good as the gland making the hormone itself, but it's pretty good. So for me, if the ovary fails, you replace it. Having said that, people are worried about the potential interactions between ovarian hormones and particularly breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And there was a big study done, the Women's Longitudinal Study, about 20-odd years ago, and they reported an increased association of postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy with breast cancer. And that led around the world to lots of women stopping hormone replacement therapy and doctors stopped prescribing it. But then people look more closely at this study and there were a lot of defects in the study and teasing out what's real and what isn't real has occupied the last 20-odd years. Mostly the relationship is with the hormone progesterone. There's very little evidence that estrogen by itself increases breast cancer. There may be a small effect, but for instance, the effect is much less than the effect of being overweight. So if you're really worried about breast cancer, you should make sure you're not over overweight and think about that much more than whether you should have estrogen replacement therapy. Mm. The other issue is cancer of the uterus, the lining of the uterus. And it's clear to prevent that, you need to have what are called withdrawal bleeds. So bleeds that uh, are induced by progesterone given for a few days to make sure you don't get cancer of the lining of the uterus. If you've had a hysterectomy, things are much easier mm -hmm. because you can't get cancer of the uterus if you've had a hysterectomy. And then just giving estrogens is quite straightforward. The other change that's happened in our armamentarium for dealing with the menopause is the development of transdermal estrogen. So this is estrogen given through the skin instead of taking it by tablet. When you take it by tablet, it gets absorbed from the bowel and goes to your liver. When 
the estrogens hit the liver, it stimulates the liver to make blood clotting factors that mm. can increase the risk of a blood clot. Obviously, you don't want that. Yeah. Women during pregnancy have high levels of estrogen and they have a, a, an increased risk of blood clots forming. And the, uh, so you, there is a risk of that when you take estrogens by mouth. But when you take it through the skin, it doesn't go straight to the liver in that way. And that's thought to be much safer. So it's not a straightforward or easy decision how to take hormone replacement, what type of hormone replacement. And for each individual woman, the risks and benefits are going to be different. If you're having terrible drenching sweats that's making your life a misery, keeping you up all night so you're tired and grumpy all day and you've got brain fog, if I was like that, I'd be going out and getting estrogen. <laughs> and if there was a small risk of an adverse event, well, that would be nothing to compared to the daily nightmare I'm going through at the moment. Yeah. But if I've got no symptoms at all, then the equation might be slightly different. And again, thinking about the long-term future, because for most Australian women, they've got a, a life expectancy in their mid-80s, then there's a lot of living to be done after the menopause. Wow. Well, well you, were, you were going to say something a second ago, Dr. Yeah, Lynn? I think this question reminds me of a previous podcast we did with Alex Morris, and we talked about, you know, normally during the menstrual cycle, we feel some days amazing, we can conquer the world, and other days we don't. So we can generally change our lifestyles and change our schedules to get around that because we know ourselves. But when you're going through perimenopause, you lose that ability to be able to predict when you can do something about it and how you can change your schedule. You can't just know, I'm going to have brain fog tomorrow, so I won't have that meeting. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to really consider when you go to get treatment. Like Roger said, it's the timing is among the most important things to consider. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I'm glad you talked about the hormone replacement because it's funny, I, I've had breast cancer. Mine was not estrogen fed, not, not having a full understanding. I've always been like, oh, I, I would be right to have that. But I know, yeah, some other women are, are really fearful around that. So that's really interesting that you kind of cleared that up with that study that you talked about. Want to fill your soul with more? Go to thesisterco.com. I've got another question for you. A woman emailed me this straight after we did the, the perimenopause episode last time. And she really wants to know why we put on weight around our middle. Why we start getting, you know, if we're going to put on weight, it's around our belly. And more specifically, she wanted to know how can she shift that? Now I, I'm going to be sexist, so forgive me for being sick. I see men and women in my clinic. When I see ladies come in, women, almost every single one mentions their weight to me. Whereas when the guys come in, they don't. So somehow our culture, our society makes women focus much more on their weight than men do. So I, I preface what I'm going to say with that. 
And the other big challenge we have in our society is that we're probably the luckiest generation and society in the whole of human evolution because all of our biology is set up to gain nutrients because for the last three billion years, the challenge for life has been to get enough nutrients to survive and to reproduce. And suddenly in this century, our challenge is not to get enough food. It's to say no. <laughs> and we have no, no background. Suddenly it's a new problem, three billion years, and suddenly we've got more food than we know what to do with. And the main determinants of eating now are social. It's yeah. going out for a meal, getting together with friends. I mean, even now in the middle of COVID, the big relaxation is you can go for a picnic. Yeah. <laughs> I vaccinated people. We're not designed to cope with too much food availability, and yet that's the challenge we're facing. So the whole planet is increasing its uh, levels of overweight. Um, so uh, that's the basic background. Then into that, you have people getting older and doing less exercise. Uh, I mean, I'm a bit of a fitness fanatic, so I exercise every day. But today, I don't do nearly as much as I did 20 or 30 years ago. I just physically, I can't do it. Uh, I mean, I was doing triathlons, you know, 20 years ago. I get up in the morning, I ride my bike, then I run, then I go for a swim. Gosh, if I did that, I'd sleep the rest of the day. Be <laughs> at work. I couldn't possibly do it anymore. And the same will be applying uh, to the ladies going through the menopause. They'll be older. If they continue to eat the same amount that they did when they were younger, they'll get overweight. So for all of us, as we get older and uh, firstly, we should maintain exercise as much as we can, but we should also be reducing the amount that we eat. One of the ways that for myself I've adapted to that is I now just have two meals a day instead of three. I'm not doing as much as I used to. I've reduced my food intake. And I think that's a reasonable adaptation to getting older and not doing as much exercise. And that might be the sort of thing that postmenopausal women should think about uh, as they um, challenge, uh, get challenged by weight gain, perhaps, is just cutting out one of the major meals. And for me, I cut out breakfast. And the reason I do that is it means that I've got an extended period of fasting from uh, my last meal in the evening through till one o'clock the next day. And I think there are scientific data to say that's probably a good way of doing it. My husband and I actually have started cutting out, we probably cut out breakfast about a year or two ago. Yeah. For that reason is that, you know, my weight has been creeping up the last few years. And a friend of mine said to me that she had read an article that said, really, you should go 16 hours from your nighttime meal to when you 
eat the next day. It should be about 16 hours, which works out about lunchtime. <laughs> so, so we actually, my hubby and I cut out breakfast. We just do lunch and dinner. During lockdown, one of the things that I can change in my day-to-day life, which is exactly the same, is what I eat. Yeah. And I'm a terrible, unimaginative cook. So I'm definitely ordering meals as like, not even social. It's more like personal enjoyment because it makes my life a little bit different than it was the day before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Roger, you're essentially saying that there's no real magic cure in terms of moving the belly fat as we get older. It's literally you just need to reduce the amount that we're eating and we don't need to eat as much. That's correct. Damn. Having said that, there are some interesting developments in treatment so that there's a new drug called semaglutide, which was initially developed for people with diabetes, and it's actually approved for treatment uh, for diabetes now. But it, one of its functions is to reduce appetite. Mm. And that may help people that can't be as strong as you are Mel, in terms of cutting out that morning breakfast and find they just can't control their appetite, that's a a treatment that might be helpful to quite a number of people in our community. Uh, But it is given by injection and it's given once a week. And at the moment, unless you have diabetes, you won't qualify for it. And again, you'd have to pay for it and your GP would have to be convinced that it was the right thing for you and prescribe it. But the preferred approach is the one that you've adopted, Mel, which is just eating rice. Sometimes the easiest, the simplest answer is not the easiest to actually do. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But is it true that if you do put on weight when you're under that, it does go more to your belly as opposed to other parts of your body? Is that like a menopausal, perimenopausal thing or is that fallacy? So hormones do influence the distribution of your weight. For instance, the hormone cortisol that comes from the adrenal glands tends to make you put on weight around your body, but not on your arms and legs. The loss of estrogen and the changes in the way uh, the hormones work because of that, particularly the way growth hormone works on uh, the liver, um, does change at that time but not in the way your correspondent's hoping. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, things tend to get less obesogenic, not more. So that weight that's going on is much more likely to be related not to the menopause, but to the decline in exercise, but the maintenance of food intake. Damn. (laughs) Want to save your soul? Review us on Apple Podcast. Okay, the next question. This question's from me. Why do I keep getting coarse hairs around my face and my chin and my neck? Why? I I went, uh, what's going on with that? Sure. So it's interesting, isn't it, that for ladies, they tend to get more hair as they get older, whereas I'm getting less hair. <laughs> That's not fair, is it? <laughs> so one group get more and the other group get less. So to address your question, the male hormones that ladies have are mostly coming from the adrenal glands. 
And they're the hormones that tend to stimulate hair growth. The hormones coming from the ovary, the estrogens, tend to oppose that. So when you get postmenopausal or perimenopausal, you're getting less estrogen, but your adrenal glands are still making the male-type hormone. So that's almost certainly what's driving the increased growth of dark hairs on your chin or thicker hairs on your chin as you get older. Better solution than for men who are getting bald as they get older. <laughs> Just the hair follicles are getting old and they just don't make the hair anymore. Yeah, yeah. So is that something that if, if you had like, if, if I had estrogen replacement, is that something that would fix that? Would I stop getting less facial hair? I'm not saying that it would fix it, but it would make it less. You're building a good case for it. <laughs> You're building a good case it for sounds it. sounds good enough, yeah. <laughs> so... Mood swings, is that a thing? Somebody has asked that question. Why do we get the mood swings and increase irritability? And, and does that just come back to what you were saying earlier when you were talking about the brain fog, that sort of thing? Well, there, there are two issues. One is I don't know anyone that's in a good mood when they're tired. If you're up multiple times at night with sweats, you're likely to be pretty grumpy <laughs> during the day. So that's one thing. A completely different thing is premenstrual tension, which is a, a disorder related to changing levels of hormones through the menstrual cycle, thought to be predominantly related to the rise of progesterone in the second half of the cycle. But again, we don't fully understand it because if it was all due to that, then young girls and young women would experience it just as much as older women. And that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be a bigger problem later in the reproductive years than it is earlier. And we don't quite know why that is. It may be, a, well, almost certainly is a change in the biochemistry of the brain, but exactly what the change is. We don't know. So next question, you have been talking about the estrogen hormone replacement. What about progesterone? So a friend of mine, she has been using progesterone cream that was prescribed for her. So she said she'd been getting the big mood swings uh, and other symptoms and she was prescribed progesterone cream. I don't know of any data that says that's a good idea. Okay, that's it then. <laughs> okay, next question. A friend of mine has recently had a hysterectomy. She wanted to know, does that cause menopause? Two, two things. Does that cause menopause, number one? And two, she said she gets phantom period pains, and is that normal? So not all hysterectomies are the same. So some people have what's called a vaginal hysterectomy, where the uterus is removed through the vagina, and just the uterus is removed. Just the uterus could be removed too um, through a cut in the lower part of the tummy. But then there's also removing the ovaries and the, um, the oviducts uh, that go from the ovaries to the uterus. And that's a total hysterectomy. Now, if you remove the ovaries, you will create the menopause because you're taking away all the, 
the place where the estrogens and progesterone can be made. So that will induce a surgical menopause, often quite dramatically, uh, followed by a lot of symptoms. Not always, but often. So I'm not quite sure which type of menopause uh, your correspondent was asking about. Uh, you could have mid-cycle pains if your ovaries were still present, releasing yeah. eggs, but not if they've been removed. Now, I've had another question of, can someone take the pill to get themselves through perimenopause so that it will mask any symptoms they have? So the answer is yes, but then when will they stop the pill? Can you stay on it forever? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, then you're having periods every month until you're 85 or 100. Think of the pollution of the planet with all of those <laughs> products for the next 50 years. So it just delays the decision as to whether or not you're going to go on to long-term hormone replacement therapy and what type of long-term replacement therapy should you be going on. One of the other options to consider too is Mirena, an implant that goes into the uterus to, and releases progesterone, and that reduces the periods, but it doesn't solve the problem of replacing estrogen. Hmm. Okay. Want to fill your soul with more? Go to thesisterco.com. Next question. Does perimenopause cause bone loss? Oestrogens help to protect your bones from thinning, bone loss, and osteoporosis and fracture of bones. And I actually did a study at John Hunter Hospital on bone loss in the Hunter, New England area. And we did it over about a 15-year period. And what we found was that the average age at which men were fracturing their main bone in their leg called the femur went up by five years over that period of time. So men were getting their fractures much later than they used to. So that was really cool. Women hadn't changed at all over that period of time. Hmm. They were getting their fractures at exactly the same age. Now, this was really puzzling because women receive in our community a lot of treatments for bone thinning. It's very common uh, for doctors to prescribe treatment for osteoporosis for women, and they hardly give any treatment to men. And yet men had got better mm. and women hadn't. Wow. So, and we spend a fortune on these <laughs> treatments for osteoporosis. So what was happening? What I think was happening is that men had stopped smoking and smoking had been damaging their bones and nearly everything else. So they'd stopped smoking and they'd seen benefit from that, quite substantial benefit. But what about for the women? Well, I think what happened with women is that because of the results of the women's longitudinal study that I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the women had stopped taking postmenopausal estrogen. And that had increased their risk. And that increased risk had been compensated for with the anti-osteoporotic therapy. But it only just kept them where they were before. It didn't lead to an improvement in the way 
men's bone health had improved. So would you expect that if women had kept on estrogen and these preventative osteoporosis medications, do you think, say, in another 15 years that they would be having later breakages? What I think would happen is that if women stayed on postmenopausal estrogen therapy, they wouldn't get bone thinning until much later in life. Dr. Roger, is a woman's experience of perimenopause or menopause genetic? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. And I suspect nobody really does because to do that study, you would have to have data on the experience of your mother and your grandmother and link it to genes. It would be a very long-term study. And I'm not aware of anybody with the data to answer that question. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting because that was, again, another question that a woman had asked me. So that's great. What I can say is that if you have an early menopause, that can be genetic. Yeah. So there are particular conditions that give rise to an early menopause and that can certainly be passed on from one generation to another. But that wasn't quite the question you asked me. It was more about the symptoms and I don't know any data on that. Well, thank you. Do you have any questions, M, Dr. M? No, but I think it's so great that everyone is really interested, engaged in their health. And like the last episode, it's so good to actually hear from people going through this because it makes us feel less alone. And I mean, I'm 28, so I haven't been through this. Roger's a male. He hasn't been through this. So I think to both of us, it's just valuable to talk to the people who's the work that we do affects them and it's great to hear from them. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's lovely. It's uh, so many people have taken a real interest. So Dr. Roger, what is the first step? What should someone do a woman do if she is really struggling with her symptoms, like go to a GP, ask for a referral to see someone like you. You should certainly go to her GP and discuss her own symptoms and risk profile with her GP and Some GPs will be very familiar with this and well qualified to look after her. Uh, But if she's not comfortable, then obviously she needs to get a second opinion, perhaps see a gynecologist with a particular interest in that or one of the endocrinologists. And we've got quite a few. So, yes, uh, um, it's a very individual thing. Yeah, and I definitely think my research perspective is all about tracking and information. So before going to the health professional, I think it's really important for you to know exactly how often this happens and when it does happen, how bad is it? Because having that very clear information will give a health professional a good idea of, you know, this is something that's been ongoing. This is something that is severely impacting your life. And when you have the numbers every month or twice a week or once a fortnight, I think that really helps you being able to explain the kind of care and support that you need. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on Hey Soul Sister, Dr. Roger. And thank you, Dr. M. I'm so glad that you have come on again. I love having you on Hey Soul Sister. So thank you. And I'll see you again soon, hopefully. Thanks for listening to Hey Soul Sister with Mel Histon. What would help you on your crazy life journey? Email melissa at thesistercode.com. 